Would you please? <laughs> Thanks. Okay. <laughs> like, don't go late, Pastor. They put a <laughs> clock right there. Like, you are. The last couple times, I might need, I might need your prayer for it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, tablet, phone, paper Bible, whatever you've got, please turn to Romans. We're going to be in chapter 2. And as we move through Romans, we're covering big chunks. Today is chapter 2. Next week is all of chapter 3. And throughout the weeks, I ask myself, why did I do this to myself to take such big chunks? The reason why is if we fly too low and we start nitpicking small verses, uh, which there's a time and place for that. Uh, Some of that will happen in growth groups, I'm sure. Uh, But we'll miss the big argument that Paul is making. Paul's making big, sweeping arguments. And the second half of chapter 1, he's saying, no one in the world is without excuse when they stand in judgment before God. Now, what I mentioned earlier when we were praying, I'm really excited about the, the series that we have going on Sunday nights here. We're going through eschatology, which is a study of the last things, end times. Uh, Nathan's doing a great job leading us through that. If you haven't come out at all, please come on out tonight. You'll catch up. It's fine. But it's interesting to see how many different positions we have when it comes to the end of uh, the world, uh, the last day. Is there a tribulation that's a specific tribulation? Or do we, does the rapture happen before the tribulation? What is the rapture? Do we get caught up and everybody else gets left behind? Or what happens there? The millennium? I think we're talking about the millennium tonight, right? What is the millennium? Are, are we not in the millennium yet? Is the millennium coming? If it's coming, what's it going to be like? There's lots of disagreements. What we often miss is what we do agree upon throughout time, dispensationalists, covenant theologians, different denominations. We agree from the earliest creeds, Jesus is going to return and there will be judgment. That's not debated. Now, what Paul is doing in Romans, he's taking that, first, that second half of chapter 1 and saying, everybody out there who doesn't have the Bible, they didn't grow up in church, they don't have Christianity, they don't have the message, they're out there, they're, not, they're without excuse. They cannot stand in judgment and go, but you didn't give me the Bible. He's like, I gave you creation. We talked about that last time I was up here. But now he turns the corner and he's imagining in his mind, not necessarily the the Roman Christians that he's writing to, but he's imagining in his mind the kind of person who would sort of smugly look at the world and say, yes, you're all going to be judged. You should have known. And then he turns his attention on that person and says, but you should have known more. You're without excuse And so while last sermon sort of pointed at people out there, this message is pointed at people in here, perhaps. And it might cut, but let's let the Lord do his surgery so we can get the tumor out and get on with getting healthy, right? Pray with me. Father, we are grateful to you for um, your grace to even sit here and listen to your word. And many don't have that privilege, we pray that we would use that privilege well and be ready for your, your judgment, Lord. Only you can do that in us, Lord, and we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the point that Paul wants to score. 
in order to escape God's judgment, you must do good works. Now, I know that doesn't sound Protestant, and I know that doesn't sound evangelical. You're like, I thought you printed the five solas on the back of the cards. So those of you who know what the five solas are, you're probably most perturbed at what I just said. Only those who do good works will escape God's judgment. But I assure you, even if it doesn't sound evangelical, it is thoroughly scriptural. And that's what all of chapter 2 is going to bring home. You cannot say, I'm ready for judgment, I said a prayer. I'm ready for judgment, I go to church. I'm ready for judgment, I was baptized. Paul says, you're not ready for judgment. You can say all those things and you can do all those things, but if your life lives in the opposite direction of all the things that God says he's about, Judgment is not going to be a pretty day for you. So all of chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1, pointing the gun sort of on the outside person, the Gentile person. This is why it's not like Paul doesn't care about Gentiles. He said in the beginning of chapter 1, this is my mission to go get the Gentiles. But then chapter 2, look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. He's imagining somebody who uh, thinks that because they have the privilege of Scripture, that they're okay, they're ready for judgment. He says, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What things? Lift your eye back up to the last paragraph of chapter 1. Remember, we just finished talking about the Gentiles who were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God. You remember, we talked a lot about uh, uh, the act of uh, the debased passion that ends up exchanging natural relations with the opposite sex to relations with the same sex. We talked about that. And then you remember, we, we noticed Paul doesn't go, oh, that's the only one. That's the only one we're going to talk about. And then he puts this paragraph like it's all kinds of stuff. This rejection of God comes out in all kinds of ways. And you've got that paragraph, foolish, faithless, verse 31, heartless, ruthless. And that's why they deserve death, verse 32. Now in chapter 2, he's going, but you're wrong for judging them because you do the same things. What same things? All those same things we just looked at in the previous paragraph. Now, I want you to notice he doesn't say, therefore, you have no excuse, everyone who judges, because passing judgment is wrong. He does not say that. This is something we misunderstand in Christianity. Didn't Jesus teach not to judge? No, he he taught you to take the thing out of your eye first so that now you can do eye surgery on somebody else. It's good to do eye surgery. If somebody's got something stuck in their eye, you want to get that out. But don't try to get that out without looking at the thing that's in your eye, right? What's wrong is not judgment. What's wrong is judgment when you're doing the same thing, hypocrite. So it's not about judgment. It's about hypocrisy. And that's what he says. Why do you not have an excuse? Not because you judge, in verse, top of verse 1. He says, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Why? Not because you judge, but because you, the judge, practice the very same things you're condemning. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, 
that you will escape the judgment of God? See, he's proving that when you stand before God, he's not going to wave a wand and go, ah, you went to church. He's going to be like, you did this and you didn't do that. So when you do those very same things that lost people do, that unbelievers do, that people outside of church do, you suffer the same judgment that they do. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment will be revealed. Does that put a little bit of a lump in your throat? Does that sit heavy on your chest? The more wickedness you do, the more wrath you're storing up. We need to understand that wrath that God doles out on judgment day is not the same level of wrath for everybody. The despot who kills millions of people so he can control a country doesn't get the same wrath as the guy that you know, stole things sometimes from work. They're both evil, they're both bad, but wrath is stored up in different measures. But whatever you do, how much of it you do, presuming on God's kindness, eh, God will forgive me if I do that. And there's not really repentance. Another thing we should make clear, there's a difference between saying sorry and being repentant. I'm sorry I did that, and then you keep doing it. That's not repentance. And I think some of us have to really take a look at our lives, the things that we keep doing over and over and over again. I need an accountability partner. I mean, that's great, but at some point you've got to get get to the point where you are repentant about it. You hate it. And this has to change. It's not I'm sorry, and it's definitely not I'm sorry because I was caught. Verse 5 says, it's because of a hard and impenitent heart that even people who have the law, the Jews who have the law, they have the Bible, they have the Old Testament, God spoke to them, God made a covenant with them. He didn't do that with just everybody. But their hearts can still be hard, their hearts can still be impenitent, and they can still store up wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And notice how he emphasizes that God's judgment doing this is righteous when he does it. And that he's right to do it. Verse 2, God's judgment rightly falls on them. And then verse 5, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He is completely right to judge us for our works. Verse 6, in case we're still not convinced, he makes it plain. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There are theologians and professors and even pastors out there who say, God doesn't get mad. I'm like, you know what wrath and fury says in the Greek? I'll give you, I'll give you a guess. Wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
It's interesting that, yes, the Jews are in this privileged position, but because they're in the privileged position, they get wrath first. But if they repent, they get grace first. See, the Jew first, then the Greek. But first doesn't mean you get out of it. There's an order to it, a sequence to it, but it doesn't mean they're not on different playing fields. Actually, he's telling them, you're on the same playing field, and that's the whole point of this chapter. Chapter 1 the person is listening like, yeah, all those people out there, the murderers, the adulterers, the crazy people out there, out there, outside of the synagogue, outside of the church, outside of our covenant. And then Paul's like, but you're in the same boat if you practice the same things they do. He will render to each one according to his works, plain as day, right there in verse 6. Now what's interesting is, when I first made that statement in the beginning of the sermon, your brain, your mind is rushing to verses that go, no, but it's not by works. And a lot of those verses are in Romans. But let's let Romans 2 do its job before we just silence Romans 2 with other passages. Each person will be judged according to their works, verse 6. Some seek for glory, they seek for honor, not for their personal glory, right, but uh, glory of God and the honor of God and the immortality that only comes with God. And those people get eternal life and those who do evil and they disobey, there will be wrath and fury because verse 11, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter to God if you grew up learning scriptures with regard to judgment. It doesn't it doesn't count. It doesn't, it doesn't factor into the equation. There is no partiality. There's works of righteousness, those who do works of righteousness, and those who disobey. They obey unrighteousness, verse 8. And God is not going to be partial. Each one will be judged according to their works. Now, when he says that God shows no partiality, now he's going to look at uh, two groups of people that we just talked about. And now, in the surface of it, he's talking about Jews who have the Old Testament. When he says law, it's the Torah and all of the Old Testament that unpacks the Torah, applies the Torah, preaches the Torah. We're talking prophets, the wisdom literature, uh, the history of the kings who did or didn't do the Torah, right? So when he says law, he's talking about they have the Bible, they have the Old Testament. They are God's covenant people. So those are people that are under the law. God expressed his law. You shall do this and shall not do that. And this group has that. Then there's another group that doesn't have the law. These are what he's referring to as the Gentiles, the people out there. They don't have that. They didn't grow up with that. They didn't have preachers. They didn't go to synagogues. They didn't have a temple. They were outside of it. And what I want you to understand and what I want you to catch is that the reason why this is relevant to everybody across time is because there's always those two categories of people. Right now, there's a category of people who have more than the Old Testament. They've got the New Testament, and they've got the Gospel, and they've got all of what God has revealed, and the things that were mysterious in the Old Testament, God revealed it in the New Testament to bring clarity to it, and it's all one thing. And there are people who are exposed to it, who grow up in it, who learn it. Their mom and dad taught them to memorize some of it. They brought them to church to learn it every Sunday. And then you've got a different group of people who didn't grow up with that, who didn't have that access. Their parents didn't sit with them around the dinner table and connect things that they're experiencing in school to the things of the Lord. They didn't go to 
Sunday school. They didn't have classes at church. There was no church. They didn't go anywhere. They just watched football on Sundays like everybody else, and that's it. Now, Paul is saying you've got these two groups, and God doesn't show partiality to either group. Both groups are going to be judged according to their works. That's where he's going here. Now, here we go in verse 12. Here are the two groups. For all who have sinned without the law will perish. That's the group that doesn't have exposure to Scripture. They will perish without the law. In other words, they can't say, well, you didn't give me law. You didn't explain it to me, so I'm not guilty. No, go back to chapter 1, right? And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So this group can't be like, well, we have the law, so we're good. No, that law that you think you're good with, you don't live it, and that condemns you. You lose, you lose. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, this group thinks they're hot stuff because they grew up in it, because they heard it, because their parents taught them it. And he's like, really cool, but you have to do it. <laughs> but you, you have to do it. You don't get points for sitting here in a brown chair. You get points for going out there and doing what was proclaimed here while you were sitting in the brown chair. And so he's saying, these people have no excuse, and these people have no excuse, because what counts is not hearing the law. What counts is doing the law. No one is going to be judged on how much they heard, but what they did with what they heard. And then verse 14, he goes back to this group here, those who don't have the law. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. Does that sound confusing? It's real simple. God says, don't murder. Now, you talk to an average person who didn't grow up in church and ask them, put a microphone in their face, what do you think about murder? What are most of them going to say? It's bad. I don't think we should do that. Most of them. I mean, some of them might be, you know, I don't know, brazen enough to be like, you know what? I think you kill a person. Most people are like, no, I don't, I don't think murder. Okay, let's say you get married your bride, she's beautiful, you bring her home. Let's say you even do the traditional thing, you carry her you know, through the threshold and you come into your house, and then the next day she cheats on you with the next door neighbor. I mean, what do you think? Just, you didn't grow up in church, but just what do you think? You think they're going to be like, cool. So what Paul is saying is by nature, isn't it something that even though they weren't exposed to the written word of God, there's something else operating here where they kind of know this is bad, that's not bad. This is what we should be doing, this is what we shouldn't be doing. They don't have it down to brass tack specifics like we do with Scripture, but it's not like they don't understand that murder is wrong. It's not like they don't understand that envy drives you to do bad things. They understand that you don't just take something from somebody else that's not yours. Even as little kids, children who aren't schooled in reasoning and debate and understanding systematic theology, understand that this is my toy, and that kid just ran away with it. Mom, they're not going to be like, Mom, Deuteronomy, something says, you know. You no, they're not going to quote Scripture. They're appealing to what? This innate sense that that was mine and it was taken from me, and that's wrong. You don't have to grow up in church to feel that. So what he says is, 
turning attention to this group that doesn't have the law. They don't have specifics. They don't know exactly what God says in Scripture. They do have enough to know that there's something wrong and there's something right. There are morals. Even when they're stepping all over themselves to redefine those morals. It says, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. In other words, they prove to themselves that there is a moral law. Even though they don't have the written law, right? They have a kind of law even though they don't have the Bible. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. A couple of things I want to unpack right here, and one of them is just kind of driving home the point that I just made. They don't have the written law, but they, in a sense, have a written law. And where is that law written? Inside. And God holds them accountable to that. Now, some people will say, oh, look, they can get saved by doing their own works. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What does that mean, the conscience bears witness? You know that old, uh, I don't know, you see in cartoons sometimes, a little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder. That's the conscience, like, do it. No, don't do it. No, just do it. No, don't do it. It's bad. And the little devil's like, no, go ahead and do it. That's the conflict of the conscience that everybody knows about. And then it says, interestingly, that that conflicting conscience accuses or even excuses them in verse 15. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, all will be revealed, nobody's secrets will be unexposed before God. Even though some things still lie in the conscience, they bother you, you haven't told anybody else about it, it does belong to God and He does see it. What some people do with that is they say, oh, some people will be excused because of what they did. They did enough good works so that they get a pass on Judgment Day. Let me just give you a little spoiler to next week, chapter 3, verse 20. A real quick spoiler, okay? Chapter 3, verse 20. By, for by works of the law, no human being. Which group is that? All the groups, both groups. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul is not saying this group can make it without the Bible because they just have to be good enough. How many people are good enough? Zero. He's only talking about condemnation at the end. The thoughts that excuse or accuse are conflicting because they know that some things they did were right and some things they did were wrong. He's not saying everybody only does evil things. He's saying people have a law to themselves. And that little innate sense that they had to not murder, and then they didn't murder, even though that person, you know, th that person stole your boyfriend, and you just, oh, you want to kill them. But you don't kill them, I hope. All right, for most people, most kind of, you know, most people in, in society, they might think hatred, they might think anger, but they don't actually do it. And those are the thoughts that excuse them for that action. But notice what the verb that comes first is the accusation. So that even if you are excused for some things, why are the thoughts conflicting for everybody? 
it's conflicting for everybody because we always, at some point or another, give in to that little red devil side that tells us, do it, even though it's wrong. So some of the things are excused, but some of the things are not excused, and we stand accused. That's why chapter 1 said nobody has any excuse. So you are not privileged to be in the group that doesn't have the Bible. There is a kind of privilege to have the Bible, but only in so much as you live it out. And that's why in verse 17, he goes back to this group now. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you were sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. They're like, yeah, I'm pretty good. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They're like, yeah, we are privileged. You then who teach others, verse 21, why don't you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's easy to look out there in the world and be like, these people inflamed with passion and their, their base mind causes them to do unnatural sexual things. Do you lust after people that aren't your spouse in your heart? What did Jesus say about that? He called it adultery. It's very easy for us to point at heinous, big, ugly, weird sins out there and pay no mind to the things we do within that are not of God and are also ugly. And those, in those matters, our consciences should accuse us. I know it's hard to hear, but we just don't want to fall into the trap where we love chapter 1 and skip chapter 2. We love talking about how people are lost and condemned, but we don't want to see how we don't live up to what we're supposed to live up to. Group one, they're guilty. Fine. Group two, they're guilty because even though they have the specifics of the law, they don't do it. Look at what he's, when he says in verses 17 to 20, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. In fact, those should describe you. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, I'm not saying you should leave here calling yourself a Jew, but what I'm saying is the function of the Jew applies to the function of the church. However you want to work that out, I think that statement is true. If you call yourself a Jew and do what? You rely on the law and boast in God. That's what we do. That's why we sing. We sing about how holy he is, how awesome he is. We're boasting in him. We're not boasting in ourselves. And we rely on the law. We, we feed on it. Well, that's why we open it to call to worship. We open the scripture to do confession and assurance. We open scripture to choose the songs that we're going to sing. We, we pray scripture. We preach scripture. We rely on it because that's how we know his will. In verse 18, for those of you who are like, man, I just wish I knew God's will. The, the first question I'll ask you is when's the last time you studied the Bible? Right? God makes his will clear. That's not the kind of will we want. We want, I want is this... Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? And We too quickly rush to those things instead of relying on his overarching will that helps us make those decisions. 
Why? Because that's how we get approved what is excellent in the middle of verse 18. We know his will, and that's how we know what to approve what is excellent. And how do you get to that point? Because you're instructed from the law. I mean, that's why we have CFC courses at night. That's why we have pretty thick sermons in the morning. We're getting instructed from the law. And if you yourself are sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, are we supposed to be that? Yeah, Jesus told us that. We're in a dark world, and we're supposed to be light. And we're supposed to go out there and shine it. So none of this is wrong. He's not condemning them for being that. It's just that in their learning and in all of their instruction that they get and all their reliance on the law, and even though they know they're supposed to guide the blind and be a light to those who are in darkness, they're supposed to approach people who don't have God's wisdom, that's why they're fools in verse 20, and instruct them. We're supposed to teach children. And having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that's why the law is so important to us. All of the Bible is so important to us. The entire counsel of God is so important to us. And that's why we teach it to our children. That's why we teach it to the foolish. That's why we teach it to those who are blind and those who are stuck in darkness. Those things aren't wrong. What's wrong is verse 21 if we don't teach it ourselves. It's common for professors of preaching to encourage the student to separate your personal devotional time from your time prepping for the sermon. When you're prepping a text for a sermon, they'll say, you're getting it ready for somebody else and it's work. You need to spend separate time so you can receive yourself. And I, I repudiate that. When I spend time in the text to give it to somebody else, I dare not get it, give it to somebody else if it hasn't worked this way through me first. So I cannot be in a place where I study the Bible so I can lead a Bible study. I study the Bible so I can preach a sermon. I study the Bible so I can tell my kids what to do. I study the Bible so I can correct my wife. I study the Bible so I can talk to somebody at work who's bugging me. But it doesn't change me. This is why Jesus made it very clear in the early chapters of Matthew, when they see your good works, they'll change and give glory to God. Not when you preach the Bible to them. Now, of course, should we preach the Bible? Yes, that's why he put all these verses here. You rely on the law. You're instructed in the law. You're a, blind, you're a guide to the blind. You're light to those who are in darkness. There's nothing wrong with any of that. That's, that's what Israel was supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to do now. But it only matters, and it's only relevant for us if we allow it to teach ourselves first. And so we don't want to preach against stealing while we steal. We don't want to preach against adultery while we commit adultery. We don't want to preach against idolatry while we uh, take advantage of idolatry out there. There's an interesting, just real quick, I didn't plan on saying this, verse 22. I need to look at this huge clock that was placed in front of me. <laughs> but it's interesting. He doesn't say, hey, you abhor idols and you worship idols. Isn't that what you think he would say? You abhor idols, but you worship idols. He doesn't say that. You abhor idols. Look at those stupid temples. Look at those stupid, huge stadiums full of people worshiping celebrities and worshiping athletes. Hurry up. Is church over? Because I got to go do my fantasy. Well, See? 
you can tell that there's idolatry out there, but how much of it do you take advantage of? How much of it do you actually enjoy? We can come up here and slam Hollywood actors and actresses for their positions, but how much of their money do they make because we've got Netflix and Hulu and we stream all of the junk without screening it, without filtering it? You who boast in the law dishonor God, who by breaking the law, I'm sorry, you who boast in the law, verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, you don't dishonor God by having the law. None of us as parents should be like, whoa, I better not bring my kids to church because they've got this higher level of intense indictment. No, you're supposed to teach your children, right? But you're supposed to teach your children while you do what you're telling them to do. None of this do what I, do what I say, don't, don't pay attention to what I do. That doesn't work. And he says, for it is written, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. My stomach is really sick of famous celebrity pastors who grow their following, and then they fail, and they fall. And then people are shocked. Like, oh, how can you be? Man, you didn't know that dude. Because he was on YouTube, because he said things that sounded great, because he was handled the word well. Yeah, he was well instructed in the law. Good job. But nobody knows his character. You don't know the character of those YouTube personalities. We separate character from the competence in teaching. We run into trouble. And when that happens, it's not just trouble for us, but the name of God is blasphemed. How does it look to the church when that famous apologist, the famous evangelist, the famous pastor has a long litany of sins that they kept secret? Nothing is kept secret. God judges the secrets. And sometimes he exposes them now before judgment day. And that is a blight on the church. It hurts the church when we come and sit and listen and we're instructed over and over again and we don't change our lives when we leave. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy is not only shaking your fist at God and saying something to him, but even in a nonverbal way, listening to the instruction, what do you have for me today, God? Oh, cool, I'll take some of it that I like and the rest of it, you can stuff it. That's blasphemy. Now he makes it really clear in the final paragraph of this chapter. And if you're feeling like, boy, nobody wins, that's right where Paul wants you. See, this, that's the checkmate. He's bringing in the rook, and you're like, well, I dodged that rook because I'm an insider. And then he brings the, the, the knight, almost at the horse, and the chest nerding, and I'm like, <clears throat> <laughs> Then the knight comes out of nowhere, and you're like, whoa, I have nowhere to run. That's exactly where Paul wants you. Now check this out. Verse 25, the last little move that he's going to make to pin this, the, the person who is in this second group in the corner he goes for the juggler when he talks about circumcision. Okay? He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Again, it's not of no value. It's only of value if you obey the law. Imagine having, imagine the most expensive car in your garage. I mean, whatever, a Lamborghini, a Ferrari. I mean, the paint job is beautiful. It's the newest one, but when you pop the hood, there's no engine in it. 
it's not that the whole thing has no value, but you're not going anywhere in that thing. And so circumcision, that's great. That's not the engine. It's of value only if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Actually, that's not a car. <laughs> Looks like a car from the outside, but it's not a car. And the most basic definition of an automobile, there's no mobile to it. There's not even any auto to it. It's not going to do anything. And so your circumcision is worthless, he's telling the Jewish reader. If you don't obey the law. Verse 29, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, this group doesn't have the law. They don't have the, the sign of God's covenant. Circumcision was God's, the sign that God has made a covenant with the Jews. But imagine they keep the law. Imagine you've got someone in this group that does do well. Aren't they better off than the person with circumcision who doesn't do well? He's not saying they can get saved that way. He's saying they're better off. There's less accusation. In verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Here is where Paul starts to sneak in the good news, just when you feel like it's checkmate, and you're like, if I didn't have the law, I can't live up to what I do know. The things that I know inside of me, that argument on my shoulders of good and bad, I, sometimes I do good, but I also do bad, and so I have no excuse. And then if you're in this group, you're like, man, all the law did was give the guys on my shoulders more to say. <laughs> it just raised the ceiling on what I know is right, wrong and, and right, good and bad. I still don't do it. So I'm lost too. So then Paul says, the problem is you thought you were safe you thought you were better than this group because of an outward sign. Now, what is our outward sign in the new covenant? The outward sign that we are in a relationship with God, the outward sign that we are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Well, there's baptism. There's also the Lord's Supper. Now, do those save anybody? They do not. They do not. Just as circumcision did not save anybody in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. Baptism does not save anybody in the New Testament. The Lord's Supper does not save anybody. They are outward signs that are supposed to match your good life, but those signs don't produce your good life. So God is not going to ask anybody on Judgment Day, did you take communion? Were you baptized? Because those are exterior signs. God looks at the heart. Were you circumcised in your heart? Were you baptized truly? Did you eat bread and drink a cup? Or did you actually commune with God in it? See? The inward reality has to be there. So the question is, if I'm not saved without the law, and I'm not saved if I have externally, 
things that God tells me to do. He tells us to get baptized. I got baptized. He tells us to go to church. I go to church. He tells me to take communion. I take communion. All the outside stuff of the law, and that doesn't save me. What do I need? You need an inward change. You can't get saved from the outside in. You have to get saved from the inside out. And these outside realities don't change you. The change has to come from within, and then those outside realities match it, proclaim it, speak to it. So when we're doing communion, we're doing something with visible, tangible objects that express something that's happened inside here. When somebody's getting dunked in the water, the water doesn't clean them, Peter tells us. But what that's doing is showing out loud and expressing in public something that happened inside here, that I died with Christ and I've been risen again. I'm a new person, not because I do things, not because I'm dunked in water. I'm dunked in water to show the thing that happened inside of me. That's an inward reality, the the heart that is circumcised. And how do you become a Jew inwardly? How do you become someone who conforms to the law inwardly, not outwardly? Because outwardly only we're lost. He says it in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. How do you do that? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. This is something that Nicodemus was confused about and he approached Jesus at night in the dark, probably so other people don't see him. He was a Pharisee. And he asked Jesus about this. And what did Jesus tell Nicodemus he has to do? Learn more law? Get recircumcised? Spend more time in the synagogue? It wasn't the outward things. Nicodemus, Nikki, buddy, (laughs) you must be born again. How can I possibly go back to my mother and I don't even want to think about the imagery? Oh, I just, born again. Listen, it's a spiritual reality. You're not physically needing to be born again. You have to be born again spiritually and by the Spirit who blows like the wind and you don't see it coming and he takes over your life and this inward reality happens that you could not produce from the outside. That's the gospel. That Jesus makes that available for us. I cannot wait to get into the other chapters. Trust me, chapters one and two aren't my favorite chapters. They're great. But you don't get the good news without the bad news. And if we don't sit there and actually just take it and understand that this is the mess we're in, then we won't really appreciate the good news. But we don't have to wait to chapter 3 and the following chapters because he sneaks it in right here at the end of this section that this inward matter is possible by being born by the Spirit. That true repentance that, is, that we're led to in verse 4 is the kind of repentance that Jesus preached when he came on the scene and he preached that Entrance into the kingdom of heaven requires faith and repentance. So when we say we are saved by grace alone, that's true. Because grace is how we get reborn inside, and that grace produces the works that we get judged for. So when God says, I will judge each one according to his works, there's the people from both of these groups that say, here's what I did and didn't do. Do I make it? And he goes, no. But there's another group of reborn people. From both of those groups, they both have a chance to be reborn by the Spirit. 
and they stand up there, and I have thoughts that accuse and excuse, mostly accuse, though. But I was reborn by the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Galatians produces fruit. So in our lives, we look at our lives, we don't ask ourselves, am I saved? I said a prayer when I was eight. Oh, I guess I'm saved. That's the wrong way to look at it. You can say a prayer, you can show up at church. Has your life changed? Is your life changing? Are you, are you in this race? Are you on the side picking daffodils, you know? You're just not moving. That's a scary place to be. But the person that's born of the Spirit, they move in that race and they run, they fix their eyes on Christ, and they push off sins more and more. It's not that we never sin, but there's pursuit and there's progress and there's faithfulness. Last thing I'll say is this. Imagine you're trying to get into a stadium and there's thousands of people in the stadium, and the only way you can get into the stadium is with your ticket. You have tickets. If you don't have tickets, you can't get in. If you have tickets, you can get in. Paul is saying, how do you get in, meaning escape God's judgment? How do you get into the stadium of, of being cool with God and making it on judgment day? Everybody else gets turned away at the stadium, and the only ones they get to enter into God's rest are those with tickets. And Paul is saying that ticket is good works. Then the question is, how do I get the ticket? That ticket is purchased. And the only way to purchase that kind of ticket, brothers and sisters, is for Christ to purchase it for you on the cross. Because He is the only one who does not have conflicting thoughts. He is the only one whose thoughts only excuse and never accuse, so that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Examine your heart, examine your life, and don't pin your ticket to a prayer or attendance on Sunday, which are great, great things. Please, keep coming. Let's learn. Let's learn so that we are changed from the inside out and we go out there with a message that matches our lives rather than going out there with a message that blasphemes our holy God. Let's pray.